0: Hey y'all, it's Crystal. And it's Samantha. And this is Syriaholic
1: Sisters. True crime shit. Hey girl, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Happy hundredth episode. I was about to say that. Meet you. <laughs> I was about to say and here's to our hundredth episode. That's so crazy that we've done this for a hundred episodes and like nobody's listening. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Although I did, I did post my like own personal page about like our plan um, oh, for, yes, Halloween. For, for Halloween. Yes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> several people that I'm friends with didn't even know that I had a podcast and I, it made me laugh. It, it really did because I don't, I guess I just I'm yeah. not very outspoken when it comes to like personal things, but personal things? I don't know. Not, not that the this kind is of... like
1: personal, but right. <laughs> like it's out there for the world. It's I, I yeah. get what you're saying because I'm kind of the same way with my own like social medias. I don't ever post anything guys. I'm literally just on there creeping watching y'all. Like that's what I do. <laughs>
0: that's I know. I really, I really don't post much anymore. Every once in a while I'll post something and I was like, Oh, I'll post this. You know, and then everyone's like, What? You have a podcast? There were some people that were like that already knew about it and listened to us. Um
1: Hey gall. How's it going? We love you. But it
0: was just (laughs) it was just so funny. I was like, Oh man, I definitely I I don't put
1: myself out there very often, do I? Yeah, I don't at all. Like at all. So I guess should we go over our Halloween plans? Yes. Yes. So, you know, so, we always try to do something a little different for Halloween, something a little special for the spooky season. We, my friend Dana actually came up with this great idea. We've got a couple of spooky stories. We we do. And we are looking for any kind of spooky, paranormal, anything that just was a little creepy that might've happened to you or someone, you know, or someone, you know, who knows somebody that happened to, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But yes. <laughs> your uncle, you your
0: have- <laughs> uncle's uncle, your uncle's cousins, uncle.
1: <laughs> if you have any kind of creepy stories that you wouldn't mind sharing with us and us sharing with everybody else, please send them our way because that's what we want our episode to be. We want to just read a bunch of like true account, spooky, creepy
0: Yes. Get us and in the season
1: vibe stuff.
0: And we're wanting it to be pretty lengthy since it's gonna be, you know, Halloween and everything. So the more stories, the better. Like, yes. Um, I've had people send some to me personally, which is nice because I want to, I want to say these stories and Crystal not know and same right. with Crystal, vice versa. Right. So if, if you, if you don't want to send it to our Cereaholic sisters um, email or whatever.
1: And well, I was going to say, if you want to send it specifically for one of us to read, you can send it to our email, but just in the sub-ish line, put "for Crystal's eyes Crystal. only" or "for Samantha's eyes or only" or something for, like that. Yeah,
0: that's a good idea.
1: Yeah, so that way the other one doesn't yeah. look at it, and it won't be all. Um... I was like, I probably
0: should not give my personal email because yeah, don't do that. I, I didn't know where you were I going with that, really and I don't was like, need... wait. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, I, well, I started thinking. I was like, well, how how can I get people to send it to us? Because I really don't want a bunch of people sending stuff to my personal email it'll probably go to my junk mail i was anyway. gonna say, I didn't have junk
1: anyways. i probably would never see it but yeah that's our plan yeah. so okay, cool yeah send them our way and we would love to share them for the halloween episode this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage no matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com specialoffer special all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special
0: It's Crystal's turn and she's got a treat. I already know who it is because we've talked about it before. Yes. She claimed this a long time ago, which I would have
1: never even tried to claim this one. <laughs> well, I like, after I claimed it and started looking at it, I was like, what did I do? because it's so much stuff so there there really is yes so I was feeling pressure you know to deliver a big case for the hundredth the big one double o and I was like well I guess I should really get into this one like I've been putting it off forever I had a lot of time a couple weeks ago because um, school started back and working at the pediatrician's office within two weeks of school starting back I had the COVID again so I was confined to my room again for five days and so that had had a lot of time for research watched a lot of documentaries a lot of interviews and I am covering so I'm covering this case <laughs> it's a case mm-hmm. um, what you just fucking say it <laughs> before I do <laughs> so this this week I'm covering, which I don't know why I'm putting it off because if they read the title of the episode, they'll know it's Charlie Manson, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, you've started to do it again. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> so I'm doing Charles Manson, you dig. Okay. That's what we're doing. I've always been super fascinated with Charlie. And then after watching interviews, I realized that it made me even more fascinated, but also he's just he's insane, guys. Like at the time this was all going on, he was perceived as like this crazy hippie man that like talked a bunch of nonsense. The more I watched him speak, the more I was like, this guy's like super smart, like dangerously smart. Like he knows what he's doing. He's playing everyone and he knows what he's doing. He's not crazy. Well, he's crazy, but he's like smart. He's crazy. crazy. (laughs) Oh, he crazy, crazy.
0: (laughs) He crazy, but he, it's so funny because I remember this conversation with Crystal before we get into the case. Talking about him and how she was like, I feel like if 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 I was like following him back then, I would have totally done <laughs> like well, all
1: the stuff. I think I, what I said was, I'm pretty sure if I was, she's during- like, I don't
0: think I would have,
1: I would have done the murder, but I definitely no, would have been part of his cult. I would have absolutely <laughs> gotten in his bus because he. I'm just the way it was back then, and him talking, his talking on stuff. I am a hundred percent sure I would have jumped in that hippie bus and just been following him and that's no cool no cool but yes so there's so 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 much on this case like enough that i could do like six episodes at least on it oh yeah but i wanted to get it all in one episode so y'all get it all at once and also because i just want to be done with this because after all of this research it was too much i had to take a step back for a minute when i was Which... like you know he's starting to make sense to me and i was then i was like no i gotta i gotta step away <laughs> <for> a minute. <laughs>
0: that's always a bad sign it's not okay (laughs) That's, that's always a bad sign this is totally unrelated to manson but in two days the new dahmer hits netflix oh does
1: it i had no idea that it was coming out now basically
0: two days i mean we've already seen jeffrey dahmer done by multiple people but this guy
1: this guy it's what's his name that's an american horror story right yes i can't, I can't think remember of his, his name.
0: name
1: yeah i feel like he's gonna do a good job evan peters thank you yes hello yes i know I evan like peters. Grandma.
0: hello world <laughs> hello world evan peters is playing Dahmer, and it comes out in two days and i'm excited because he like it's creepy how much he like looks like him like i feel
1: <laughs> like he'll he'll do him very well and i think it'll be super creepy yeah he always does
0: yeah the creepy horror stuff very well anyways so
1: let's get anyways. into the charles manson case though <laughs> yes yes so i've condensed it as best as i could there's a ton of different people involved i'm gonna throw at you and i could honestly go so deep into each one of them but for all of our sanity i'm not gonna do that <laughs> so settle in and get all comfy cozy gonna be a long one let's get into it so charlie was born also i'm gonna go back and forth between calling him charlie charles and Manson because. I feel like that's how I wrote it in my notes so oh okay <laughs> <laughs> on all the interviews and stuff everybody that knew him called him Charlie so that's why yeah. I feel like that's why I wrote Charlie all the time I've, I watched
0: several documentaries with him and a lot of his interviews too um so I feel like I probably know him better as
1: Charlie yeah in a lot of it because almost everything was Charlie Charlie he was born Charles Mills Maddox on November twelfth, 1934 to 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox, a runaway who had been making her living as a sex worker. His father was Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr. He was a married con man who had told Kathleen that he was a colonel in the army, but colonel was actually just his first name. So he was not a colonel. He was just named <laughs> colonel.
0: <laughs> when
1: kathleen told him that she was pregnant he said that he had to go away on official army business and he dipped
0: (laughs) and that was that in other words he had to go buy some milk and
1: cigarettes from the gas station down the road (laughs) so charlie never met his biological father and soon after kathleen married a man named william eugene manson and that's where the manson name came from They remained married for a few years, but William eventually filed for divorce because Kathleen really wasn't, like, the best wife or what you might call, like, a fit mother. Um, No, no, mm -hmm. she wasn't fit at all. She was not. So she and her brother Luther would stay out, like, partying with friends late into the night. Um, When Charlie was a wee baby, she once sold him for a pitcher of beer. I was going to say, I knew this. Because yes.
0: when you said fit mother, I wanted to say it, but
1: I I, I was waiting because I
0: knew you were going to, I was, but yes, she sold him, but, but she got him back. She did. <laughs> so
1: apparently she had been like chatting with this waitress where she had brought Charlie and the waitress was like absolutely fawning over him. And she told Kathleen about how she was, she had a baby of her own. And Kathleen said, well, a pitcher of beer and he's yours. And the waitress was like, um, okay clearly she's joking but she just like threw a pitcher of beer in anyways you know just to see (laughs) and sure enough kathleen finished her beers and left baby charlie behind so a few days later his uncle actually like tracked him down and brought him back home (laughs) yes so yes not a super fit mom when charlie was about four and a half years old his mother and uncle luther were arrested for possibly the worst robbery ever Kathleen had been out partying and she met a man named Frank Morton. Frank seemed like the kind of guy who was like pretty well off. So she called her brother. She called Luther up and she was like, hey, so I met this guy. Seems like he's got a lot of money. And so Luther was like, cool, cool, cool. Like get him to take you to this gas station and I'll meet you there and then we can rob it. So they meet up at the gas station with their little designated spot. And Luther comes up behind Frank and he shoves a ketchup bottle filled with salt into his back. Like it's a gun or something. Right. (laughs) And he tells him, he's like, give me all your money. And Frank's like, I am not an idiot. That's clearly a (laughs) bottle, not a gun. (laughs) So Luther panicked and smashed the bottle over Frank's head, knocking him out. The siblings stole all of the money he had on him, which ended up being like 35 bucks and then they drove off in his car. Within days, the two were caught, obviously, got arrested. Luther was sentenced to 10 years, and Kathleen was sentenced to five years at the West Virginia State Prison in Moundsville. It was decided that Charlie would be sent to live with Uncle Bill and Aunt Glenna and their daughter Joanne in McMacken, West Virginia, because it was close enough to the prison that Charlie could visit his mother. Charlie would later say that one of his first memories is walking into that prison to meet with his mother. And in one of the many, many documentaries I watched on Manson, it like showed this prison and it looked like a straight up like medieval fortress. Like it was terrifying. I can't imagine being like a small little five-year-old, like walking up to this giant intimidating building to go visit your mother. Yeah, Seeing his mother sitting back there with more like serious criminals, like rapists and murderers through this thick glass wall and not being able to like get to her or hug her was just very overwhelming for him and yeah so during these visits he would like every visit he would scream and start like throwing a fit because he wanted to get to his mom his uncle would like look at him like disgusted and drag him out because in the words of his uncle bill he was acting girly and like a sissy
0: yeah because he's five and Right, which I I can't defend him though because he's a monster. I know, (laughs) know. but like we say, you can feel bad for the kiddo, just not the. It's really hard when you think about what they've done (laughs) as an
1: adult. So, Uncle Bill is kind of a dick. He was a very stern man, who didn't think that little boys should ever cry or show any kind of emotion. So even though Charlie was having this terrible reaction to going and seeing his mother in prison every single time he went bill continued to take him on like for like visits on a regular basis because he's just like the worst yeah and yeah we'll get to that in a second so after charlie was arrested later on in life for conspiracy to commit all the murders that we're gonna get into later he actually wrote to the warden of this prison where his mother had served time because he wrote to the warden and wanted to be transferred to that prison right at the time, the West Virginia authorities were not allowed to accept transfers, and also that was a completely different state. Like, he, he wouldn't have been able, it wouldn't have worked anyways. Right. But the warden at the time, Donald Bordenkircher, said that it would be a cold day in hell before he would agree to have Manson in that prison. Why? Because he was Manson. This was after Why? all his crimes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Sorry, anyways. So, back to we Charlie. From a very young age, Charlie was drawn to music it was always a part of him him
0: and that damn guitar
1: (laughs) yes so he loved listening to bing crosby he loved frank sinatra he actually began playing piano way before guitar oh i didn't know that Mm mm-hmm he's his aunt and uncle had a piano at their house Hmm. and they were very religious and they like took him to church every summer summer every sunday he'd just go to church Mm -hmm. in the summer No, they took the rest it- of the year doesn't matter, but right, you better go in summer. So you better no. go in summer. <laughs> they would take him to church every Sunday, which he didn't love, but he did love when it was time to sing the hymns. He remembered every line from every hymn. Isn't isn't that what most kids like the music? The yes. music we love, or the, the
0: or the little or the if you're Catholic, the little. Little crackers
1: in the little snack time, a a little communion communion. communion communion. I cannot talk. <laughs> so Charlie was literally like a sponge when it came to remembering things like that. He left school at a young age and he couldn't really read or write much, but he had an insane memory. Like always, this would become apparent much later in life when he would recite the Bible, primarily the Book of Revelation, and his preachings memory from like way back when he used to go to church when he was like five six seven mm-hmm. but when Charlie started first grade he was placed in the classroom of reportedly the meanest teacher in school like this was not an exaggeration everyone in the town agreed not just the kids like even other teachers were like oh yeah she's a bitch oh <laughs> it was just like the meanest like Miss Trenchbull yes it was Miss Trenchbull yes <laughs> A neighbor that was a neighbor when Charlie was young, one of his neighbors, she said, in an, I said neighbor like six times, she <laughs> she said in an interview that she would never, ever want one of her own children to be in that teacher's classroom. Like she would pull them if they were assigned to that class. Oh. She said it was known that she ran her classroom like a prison. She would like group all the students together and like whatever way she perceived them. So she would literally be like, okay, all the smart kids sit here. All the dum-dums sit here. (laughs) Yes. Like, she was the worst. Oh, my god! Charlie sat in the back of the room. I don't know what that meant. I don't know where he was assigned. But after the first day of school, he came home crying about all the mean things the teacher said to him. Uncle Bill doesn't like crying, remember? He was mortified Mm -hmm. that Charlie was acting like a sissy. So he angrily went into his daughter Joanne's room, grabbed a dress out of her closet, and forced Charlie to wear it to school the next day oh god he was like well if you insist on acting like a girl then you're gonna dress like a girl how awful is that no wonder dude's fucked up now don't get me wrong though even though he was like a sensitive kid he was not that innocent mm-hmm. There were very early signs of like the violent and manipulative man that he would later become when he was six years old there was a boy in his class that he didn't like and at recess I know one day, I was gonna mm, say, I know about this one. Mm-hmm, a bunch of the girls in class like jumped that boy and kicked his ass. Like these six year old girls just like jumped this boy, kicked his ass. The principal like steps in, breaks it up. He's like, What the hell, girls? Like, what's going on? And they're like, Charlie asked us to do it. And Charlie's like, I mean, it wasn't me. They did what they wanted to do. You can't blame me for what other people do. Does that sound anything like the Charlie? It literally sounds exactly <laughs> like adult Charlie. It does. And then he was just the smooth talker that could just, like, get these girls to do whatever. Also,
0: any six-year-old that can talk a group of other six-year-old girls into beating a, like, bruh. Right. You know you raising a psychopath.
1: <laughs> but ain't nobody raising him, really, though. No. No. So after three years in prison, Kathleen was paroled early for good behavior. When she returned home, she gave Charlie a big hug, and he would later describe this as the only happy memory from his entire childhood.
0: Oh, that's sad, right? That is awful.
1: Yes, that happiness. Oh my god, it makes me want to go
0: and hug my kids right now. Okay, <laughs> I told you, you you feel bad for the little one, the little wee. Yeah, but I like. I feel like I i need to go hug them now just to like sure right this they second get, i'm pretty they sure they don't they're... turn into serial
1: killers <laughs> i i think we're okay but i mean i'm pretty sure they're sleeping right now so that might freak them out if you <laughs> <laughs> touche <laughs> <laughs> maybe just wait till morning
0: <laughs> <laughs> i can do that
1: so kathleen and charlie moved from town to town for a while living in different like rundown motel rooms Um, For a minute, she seems like she's trying to get herself together and, like, provide a life for her and her son. She gets a job at a grocery store and enrolls Charlie in school. But Charlie just, like, won't go to school. Like, she would literally walk him to school, drop him off, go to work, and he would wait for her to leave and then also leave. Sometimes he would just show up at the grocery store where she was working after she had already dropped him off and start, like, begging the customers for, like, food or money. Eventually, Truancy officers began knocking at her door because you got to go to school, kid. You can't just not go to school. Mm-hmm. She continued to struggle to get him to stay in school, and she eventually decided to send him to the Gabalt School for Boys when he was 12. This school was like a home for wayward boys, aka a school for male delinquents that was run by Catholic priests.
0: Yeah, that's not good.
1: So it was a pretty strict school, and corporal punishment was like super normal at the time. Punishment for even the smallest infraction would be a beating by either a wooden paddle or the leather strap. And Charlie wanted no part of that. So according to him, his mother would visit him sporadically and she would like always promise that they're gonna live together again soon. And eventually he got tired of waiting and he ran away from the school back to his mother. He was devastated when she immediately returned him back to school. He was like, Mom, I'm home. We can live together. And she's like, no, let's go back to school. He said it was in that moment that he realized that everything she ever said to him was a lie and that he could trust no one ever. He escaped the at school a few more times, once running away to Indianapolis, where he committed his first known crime of, like, robbery. He, at one point, was robbing a grocery store so that he could have something to eat. But he ended up finding a cigar box that contained a little over 100 bucks. So he took that instead of just some food, and he used it to rent a room on Indianapolis' Skid Row.
0: Mm. So for a
1: short time, he got a job delivering messages for Western Union. But it didn't take long before, like, he had ditched that, and he's just, like, committing petty thefts and just, like, things like that to earn money. Is Western Union still a thing? Um, apparently so, but, like, I don't think anybody uses it. But like um, mom, no. <laughs> yeah, that's a Venmo's for. <laughs> okay, that's like cash out So, <laughs> um, he was eventually caught for all these petty thefts, and at fourteen, a sympathetic judge sent him to Boystown in Omaha, Nebraska. So this was huge. Boystown was like this nonprofit, cream of the crop. You're so lucky if you can get in, kind of orphanage for young boys. That focused on teaching them a mix of like school, work, play, and like family togetherness. Mm -hmm. So this is like a big prestigious thing. It was literally designed to give young boys like Charlie a second chance and a fresh new start. And there was even a newspaper article with a picture of like young Charlie shaking the hand of the judge that decided to send him there. And the headline said, dream comes true for lad. He's going to Boys Town. (laughs) So Charlie lasted four days there. And then he stole a priest's car with another boy, <laughs> and they drove to Illinois. Two weeks later, after committing yet another, 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 <laughs> another, two weeks later after committing yet another string of robberies, Charlie was caught and sent to Indiana Boys School. Now this school was like the exact opposite of Boys Town. It was very strict reform school. It was way into corporal punishment. And reports have come from inmates at that school. Like we could do a whole episode on that school alone. There have been reports from inmates saying that they were beaten until they were bleeding. One boy said that he was placed in a padded room for solitary confinement for like 70 days. Oh my God. hmm Um, it was said that the boys were encouraged to rape each other by staff members. One boy, 16-year-old Anthony Burse, mysteriously died. After getting into a fight with another inmate when he was, like, leaving the dining hall, they, like, get into this fight, Burst was restrained and taken to a padded room, and then the next morning, he was just found unconscious, lying in a hallway. He was taken to the hospital and died that morning. How does that happen? Super sketchy, exactly. Yeah. So not a great place to be.
0: Mm-mm.
1: Charlie was raped by other students and often beaten while there. It was while at this school that Charlie developed a self-defense technique that he later called the insane game. So basically, he was unable to physically defend himself because he was always just like this wee, scrawny little guy. So what he what he would do to play the insane game is he would just start like screeching and waving his arms around and <laughs> acting like he was insane. And then people would be like, what the fuck's his problem? And they'd stop messing with him. So that's where he learned that defense mechanism. He ran away from the school 18 times in three years. In February of 1951, when he was 16, he broke out again with two other boys and they drove the stolen car across state lines, which just happened to be a federal offense. So all these other ones were just like, they were little misdemeanors. They were right. well, they were crimes, but there's like state crimes. This is like federal. They were caught at a roadblock in Utah and Charlie was sent to the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C. This began a long stint in the federal reformatory system. From there, he went to the Natural Bridge Honor Camp. There, his aunt visited, and she told administrators that if he was paroled, he could stay at her house, and she'd like help him find work and get him on his feet and like get him all straightened out. Now, he had a parole hearing scheduled for February of 1952, where his aunt was trying to get him released to her. A month before this hearing was supposed to take place, he was caught raping a boy at knife point. So they were like, "No parole for you." No, no. He was transferred to the federal reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia, where he committed quote eight serious disciplinary offenses, three of them involving homosexual acts. He was then moved to a maximum security federal reformatory, maximum security federal reformatory in Ohio. Words are hard. <laughs> He was expected to be released his aunt and uncle on his 21st birthday, but while he was there, he, like, had a run of good behavior, and he earned himself an early release in 1954, even though caseworkers had deemed him as aggressively antisocial. So, like, it's fine.
0: Oh, go on, okay. Go on out there. Yeah. He, he doesn't know how to be in public, but here you
1: go. <laughs> go to public. Go to public. <laughs> A year later, after his release, he was married to a local waitress named Rosalie Jean Willis. And for a very, very brief time, he found like honest employment and lived like a quiet home life. Before long, the young couple was expecting their first child. And Charlie convinced Rosalie that they should move to L.A., where his music career would surely take off. And then their family would be like set. He then decided it'd be a great idea to steal a vehicle to drive them that way this was not a great idea that's no that's it, was, not. it was not so he was caught and arrested and sentenced to three years at terminal island in san pedro california and while he was there rosalie gave birth to their son charles manson jr she would visit him often for a while but then these visits started to become less frequent and then less than two weeks before he was scheduled for a parole meeting Charlie found out that Rosalie had met another man and that she was filing for divorce. In response to that, he tried to steal a car and escape, but was caught. And so that obviously made his parole be denied yet again. (laughs) (laughs) And he was given five years probation. Bad choice. Bad choices. (laughs) He was released in 1958 and began working odd jobs like pimping 16-year-old girls for living. Not long after his release, he was caught forging a U.S. Treasury check in the amount of $43. So that was worth it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not a lot of good choices here. He was arrested and given a 10-year suspended sentence and probation. He then moved to New Mexico with the woman that he was pimping at the time, but was promptly arrested for violating his probation because he's not supposed to leave the state. So this got him sent back to L.A. to serve his 10-year sentence, which had been suspended on the basis that he not violate probation at all. So he <laughs> violated. So they're like, go stay here for 10 years now. In July of 1961, he was transferred to the United States Penitentiary at McNeil Island, Washington. While there, he took up guitar. So this is where guitar starts. Yep. And he got lessons from Barker Carpus, gang leader Alvin Creepy Carpus. Mm-hmm. He closely followed the rise of the Beatles while he was there, became super obsessed with becoming a famous musician, 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 <laughs> you know, the, the people that play the music. I don't know. <laughs> so yes, want to be a famous musician. He also dabbled around in Scientology a bit while he was there. So that's cool. Yeah. Good old Tom Cruise. <laughs> old Tom Cruise. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> that's all I think of when I hear Scientology also. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Fun fact actor danny trejo was in the same prison as him you know you know machete yeah once upon a time mexico you know him so he wrote about in his memoir trejo he wrote about how manson hypnotized him in prison before danny trejo got clean and became a famous actor he was like a teenage heroin addict and he was like in and out of jail and he said at the time when he was there with manson he felt bad for him because he was like so wee and he felt like he needed protection And a few days after Danny met Charlie, Charlie told him and a few others that he had hypnotic powers and that he could get them high through guided meditation. (laughs) So, according to Danny, Manson first talked to the group into thinking that they were smoking weed and then into that they were using heroin. Danny said that by the time he described it hitting my bloodstream, I felt the warmth flowing through my body. If that white boy wasn't a career criminal, he could have been a professional hypnotist. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> right. So by the time Manson was released in 1967, at the age of 32, he had spent more than half of his life in the care of the state, whether it be prisons or other institutes. And when it was time for his release, Charlie put in a request to stay, telling authorities that prison had become his home and he had no place to go and he didn't think he could handle it out there. Basically, That's pretty sad. Right. He basically grew up in prison, which like rumor has it is pretty rough. You probably have to be in constant like fight or flight mode. So he had no idea to be how to be like a normal functioning adult. And despite him telling them this, they were like, sorry about it. And just like sent him on his way. So they probably should have listened to him. So I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, probably. On his release day, Charlie requested and was granted permission to move to San Francisco. Now, during his time in prison, America had changed quite a bit. You've got, like, Vietnam happening. There's race (laughs) riots happening. A lot's going on during the world during this time. During the world. A lot's going on in the world during this time. (laughs) Well, in San Francisco, the Summer of Love was going on. The Summer of Love was basically this social phenomenon that took place in the summer of 67. Around 100,000 people, mostly young hippies, converged in the height ashbury neighborhood of san francisco okay and the summer love basically encompassed like hippie music hallucinogenic drugs anti-war and free love so this pulls like a ton of quote-unquote broken kids to the area and manson okay. was really digging that vibe he's like i can do something with this
0: manipulate okay
1: manipulate okay. So <laughs> oh i heard you the first excited.
0: time <laughs> <laughs> it was just it was just rolling off my tongue okay
1: <laughs> so he makes his way to san francisco he lives mostly by pain handling for a while like playing the guitar that creepy Carpus had taught him to playing in prison yeah he soon met 23 year old mary brunner mary was working as a librarian at berkeley And she came across Manson and the two began talking and he brought up that he didn't have a place to crash for the night. So Mary was like, well, you can come stay with me. We don't do this with strangers, people. (laughs) How many times do we have to tell you? (laughs) So he like moves into her apartment, doesn't just stay for the night, he like moves in. He's like, okay, cool. Here's all my stuff.
0: (laughs) He's like, I live here now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The two of them begin like a relationship or so Mary thought. So, before long, Manson began bringing other women back to the apartment to stay with them, also. And at first, she was like, What, what are you doing? No, let's not do you're, that.
0: You're part of a cult.
1: But <laughs> he's part of a cult. <laughs> he convinced her that this was best like, everyone can love everyone and whatever. And that's a cult. <laughs> so, before long, Manson had brought in 18 other girls to live with them. So, there's not enough room for them in her apartment anymore. So, Charlie loaded the girls up in an old school bus that they had, like, hippified. Like, you know, put colorful rugs and pillows and stuff. Like, they, they removed the seats and made it a hippie bus. Mm-hmm. And they just started traveling. They traveled as far as, like, Washington State and, like, all throughout California and the Southwest. And along the way, the Manson family grew. But he's not
0: supposed to be traveling. <laughs> he's not, but... <laughs>
1: that's what he's doing so i mean he served his time this time so i I don't think there was any specific rules that said he couldn't leave cities at this point
0: maybe
1: so the manson family grew because like we said he was a smooth talker anyone who met him said that he had like a charisma about him and he had a way of making everyone he talked to feel special and like valid he would find young people that felt lost in the world and talk to them and get them to like follow him And by follow him, I mean, leave their families and all of their belongings behind and like hop into his bus and just go wherever they ended up. Like literally follow him. Like just follow him. Many of his early followers said that he was easy to talk to and his mind was like really intriguing. Mm. They said that he seemed to genuinely care and like show them love and attention that they so desperately crave from people in their families or their other lives that they just never had found anywhere else. He would offer drugs and become sexually involved with all the girls. So they're all just like riding around, tripping, having sex. And his followers were not all strictly girls. So he had a few mans up in there. Mm -hmm. He would get men to join the group and trust him by offering them women and drugs. And eventually he would use the girls in the family that he thought were the prettiest to recruit new family members. Right. That's fucked up. He would call them the front street girls and they would get, they would like lure others to join the group, which wasn't super hard because these kids were all like lost kids looking for their place in the world or whatever. Right. And so these girls were like, Hey, come on. Like Charlie's gray. You should come stay with us. And they're like, okay, they're all digging this. Like they had found this cool dude. He'd gained all their trust. He gave him drugs, sex. They played music. It was just a place that all these people wanted to be. Most of his followers had left home and had like nothing to their names at all. They were all like, like like-minded. They were anti-system, peace and love, all that, all that jazz. And they're just stoked to have found a group of people that all shared similar interests. Now to that, I'm just going to quote Karen and Georgia from My Favorite Murder and say, call your dad, you're in a cult, like you were (laughs) saying. (laughs) Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, they were definitely in a cult. (laughs) You're in
1: a cult. So eventually the family had made their way to LA, which is where Charlie had always talked about going to pursue, pursue which is where Charlie had always talked about going to pursue his music career anyways. In March of 1968, two of the girls from the family were walking around Sunset Boulevard hitchhiking. And you're not
0: supposed to do that either. Yeah,
1: we talk like, about that a
0: lot. We talk about that a lot. Don't hitchhike. <laughs> I mean, but Don't
1: hitchhike. Like, like the late 60s. That's what you did dennis wilson from the beach boys ended up picking them up (laughs) yeah so he brings them back to his big ass house and they like all hang out him and these two girls and after a bit he's like hey so like i gotta go record for a while with the boys but i'll be back in just a bit and when he gets home the entire ass manson family has moved into his house (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) yeah that's, that's how they did so like charlie meets him at his front door at his front door and dennis is like what the fuck is happening like who the fuck are you what's going on well you know smooth talking charlie was ready for him and after speaking to charlie dennis was cool with everyone staying there for a little while that
0: is so fucking weird (laughs) so fucking
1: weird it was like a never-ending party in his house there was like drugs and orgies everywhere before mm-hmm. long, Dennis and Charlie were like besties, and Charlie had really sold him on his music. So much so that Dennis was using his own money to pay for like recording sessions for Charlie to play and record his own songs. So Dennis began trying to convince like the other Beach Boys that they should like take a listen to him. But the rest of the Beach Boys were like, Dennis, what the fuck are you doing, bro? Like, <laughs> This guy is cuckoo bananas. It, it's, <laughs> he's clearly just using you for your money and your house and these drugs. And for a while, Dennis was like, no, y'all, y'all just don't get it. But eventually, a combination of all of the nonstop partying and Charlie spending like large amounts of Dennis's money became too much for him. The family members had cost him approximately $100,000. This included a very large medical bill for the treatment of their gonorrhea that they kept getting. Ew, gross. Uh, Yeah. And $21,000 for the accidental destruction of his uninsured car that they had borrowed and totaled.
0: Oh, no. Yeah.
1: So he eventually kicked the family out of his house and they ended up cutting ties. But before that happened, during one of the recording sessions that Dennis had paid for, this music producer named Terry Melcher was brought in to listen to Charlie. So this session was like pure fucking chaos. Charlie had like brought some of the girls into the session and instead of charlie just like playing guitar and singing his songs it was charlie playing guitar and singing his songs along with a bunch of girls like some of them not at all very musical they're like all singing the song they're like clapping Mm. and like beating on shit and just like feeling themselves but terry melcher was not feeling them he's like what the fuck is happening (laughs) so this is going to play a big part later in the charles manson story After all this, after they cut ties and everything, the Beach Boys would put out the song Bluebirds Over the Mountain, which was originally written by Charles Manson, but it was altered by Terry Melcher, that producer. And they didn't credit him for it, like, at all. So this, like, obviously pissed him off. Like, he's been spending all this time trying to get his music out there and make a name for himself. And they just, like, straight up, like, stole an altered Stole a song. song. Mm -hmm. And Charlie holds a grudge. So that'll come back. In August of 1968, Susan Atkins, a longtime Manson follower, found the family a new home. So their new home was called Spawn Ranch. We know movie. all about this one. <laughs> we do. It was an old movie set where all of like the old Western movies were filmed. Like it had the old Western movie landmarks. The there was, saloon, like, a jail. Mm-hmm. all that stuff. Yeah. Saloon, a cafe. Yep. It's like an entire town set in the old West. Mm-hmm this ranch was owned by 80 year old half blind man named george spawn and manson's like okay that'll do donkey and the entire (laughs) manson family just moved right on in so they would like do chores and stuff around the place for for mr spawn and some of the girls would like care for him and have sex with him so that he would allow them to stay and that's how they paid their rent so while living at the ranch, members of the family said it was like time didn't even exist. They were just like living in the moment. They're like letting everything else go. And by letting everything else go, they were allowing Charlie to get in their heads and basically change all of their views of the world to match his crazy ass fucked up views. So he told them that his he his
0: Scientology
1: <laughs> views. <you're> right. <laughs> he told them that he was the only one that knew the truth. And he told them that the world was corrupt and that they needed to forget everything that they had ever learned. He made sure that his followers were constantly doing drugs. So it was not hard to convince them of these things. Right. And he would often do like different exercises with the group while they were doing these drugs. Like they would all sit around in a circle and he would like stand in the middle and talk to them while they're like all tripping balls on like acid or belladonna. He would tell them, you know, you need to forget your families, your mothers, your fathers, all of that in your past just needs to die. You need to die in order to rebuild. So you need to let your old life die to start this new one. At one point, he even reenacted Jesus's crucifixion while they were on LSD. So that's oh, cool. okay. Yeah, cool, cool. That's literally the
0: definition of a cult. Yeah, like that's, <laughs> that's what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So you've got all these people that are like cut off from society. They're in the middle of nowhere doing drugs every day. This is probably fine, right? Absolutely no brainwashing going on here at all. Mm, Yeah. Originally, his philosophy was all about the power of love and everyone being one. And that's what he was like preaching. But eventually he became more and more paranoid and his messaging became darker. He began preaching that there was no, and to be clear, when I said that I would follow him, I would follow the love part <laughs> once we <laughs> no. got all weird i know he, i know and he got all crazy i i don't agree with it just so everybody out there knows i don't agree with anything else that happens <laughs> <laughs> he began preaching that there was no right or wrong in life and that death and life were the same thing death shouldn't be feared as it was really just a welcoming into a better life eventually he got to the point that nobody was allowed to leave the compound without his permission like i mentioned earlier the world was like a super heavy place at this time there was vietnam going on there's all these protests against the war there's like race riots so manson followed all of this but he would keep it from everyone else in the family so he was able to tell them whatever he wanted to about what was going out on out in the world and mm-hmm. they would just blindly believe him because why why wouldn't they it's charlie
0: because they couldn't leave
1: yeah so it was around this time that he became super worried that a race war was going to break out. Oh, and yes. yes, during these drug exercises, Charlie would play the Beatles. I mean, this the family. is
0: literally the whole,
1: the whole helter-skelter um, thing. The
0: whole, yes.
1: Yes. He would play the Beatles for the family during these exercises a lot of the times. Remember, he had been following them since they first came around one of those times that he was in prison. Right. And he became... Super convinced that the Beatles were sending him a subliminal message in the White Album. So he would play it forward, backwards. He would like speed it up. He would slow it down. He became so obsessed with these messages that he thought the Beatles were sending him that that was all he started caring about.
0: Listen, drugs are bad, i okay?
1: <laughs> When they would listen to the album on acid, they found so much more in the words. For example, and these are these are ridiculous things when you hear them. Just little things that they felt connected the Beatles to them. So there's a song called on that album called Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey. Well, I watched interviews with some of the family members and they were like, we used to call Charlie the monkey. So like, oh, my God, they're talking to us like they're talking about Charlie. Like they truly believe this. (laughs) I'm like, guys, (laughs) you're reaching reaching a little bit. (laughs) They thought the Beatles had like honed in on them specifically. What they didn't realize was like, so did everybody else at that time. That's the thing about great music. Like it has a way of connecting with virtually everyone, no matter what you're going through, what your circumstances are. If it's great music, people feel connected to it they just took it a bit too far <laughs> They a little felt too far just a just a, wee a smidge little, a wee little bit they felt that the beatles were reaching out specifically to them and that's where charlie gets this whole idea that helter skelter the apocalypse is coming now helter skelter is the name of one of the songs on the white album and this was the name that charlie was now calling the race war that he talked about all the time i'm gonna lay out this ridiculousness that he was telling everybody okay his ridiculous theory so he's telling them that when helter skelter comes the cities are going to be like mass hysteria the police aren't going to know what to do he told them that black men would rise and kill all of the white people as karma for what all the white people had done to all the other races then after they like take over they would be unable to rule and run things so then they're going to turn to the only white people left for help which would be the manson family because the manson family will have survived by hiding underground in the desert throughout the entire war
0: (laughs) or in this case an old western (laughs) movie set
1: (laughs) so he's telling the family all this where they're like tripping on drugs and he's backing this up by showing them only what he wants them to see on the news So he'll show them, like, race riots that are happening in, like, major cities, especially this happened, like, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.
0: Right. There was, like, all these
1: riots, and so he's showing them this and not telling them anything else, and they're just like, well, shit, it's happening, dude. Like, Charlie's telling the truth. The apocalypse is coming. It's Helter Skelter, man. So Charlie is just nonstop talking the Beatles and the Bible to them because, remember, he had that crazy, insane memory, so he's able to recite the book of revelations from memory to them from back when he was we and went to church mm-hmm. with his aunt and uncle right but he wasn't actually like reciting all of it he was just like picking and choosing parts that he wanted to tell them that went with his crazy ideas like one of the things in the book of revelations was this, was a discussion about a bottomless pit and so charlie told the family in the desert or the bottomless pit there would be a wonderful city hidden underground And this is where they could live and exist and like multiply while Helter Skelter was happening. They could repopulate the earth and then rule since obviously the black men would eventually need their help. Cuckoo bananas, like insane Mm -hmm. in the membrane. Mm -hmm. Now, in July of 1969, an event would occur that just added fuel to his crazy ass race war theory. One of the family members who happened to also be a drug dealer named Tex Watson went out to go do a deal with another dealer named Bernard Krepp. So Tex is buying a shit ton of drugs from this guy and he didn't have enough money with him to cover all the drugs that he's trying to get. Right. So Tex is like, okay, that's okay. It's cool. Give me the drugs and I'll give you all the money that I have right now. And then I'll go get the rest of the money and bring it back to you. And Bernard was like, do you think I'm stupid? Like obviously you're just going to take the drugs and go like, what the hell? <laughs> and text was like no bro like i'm good for it i'll I'll, here i'll take the drugs and i'll leave my girlfriend here that way you know i have to come back with the money like obviously i'm not just gonna abandon my girlfriend right well he abandoned his girlfriend (laughs) (laughs) just left her there with another drug dealer with no intention of going back for her just just dipped and after a while bernard was like this crazy ass man just left his girlfriend here like he's not coming back (laughs) (laughs) so bernard calls the ranch. And he has to speak to Charles because that's what Texas' name actually was. Tex is his nickname. So his name's actually Charles Watson. Right. So he, he calls the ranch. He has to speak to Charles. He's trying to get Tex on the phone. He ends up getting Charles Manson on the phone. And he tells him that if he doesn't bring him his money, he was going to burn the ranch down and he's going to rape all of his women there. Well, Manson is not having that. So he goes to meet with Bernard and they end up fighting and Charles ends up shooting him. He took the girlfriend with him and they like dipped and he thinks that he has just killed this man. Well, Bernard actually survived, but Charlie didn't know that. So for the whole next little bit, he is thinking that he has killed this dude. He starts getting super paranoid because he believed that Bernard was a member of the Black Panthers just because he was a black man. So obviously Black Panthers, right? Right. Um, and now he's paranoid that the Black Panthers are going to come after him and his family since he killed Bernard. So he's telling the family that they all need to learn to protect themselves. He's like handing out weapons to them. And he also enlists the help of a motorcycle gang called the Straight Satans for protection over the compound by promising them all the girls they wanted. They're like, he's like, you protect us. You can have all the girls you want. So one day, the biker gang wanted some drugs. Okay. And one of the family members named Bobby Bosal, I'm going to say it wrong. One of the family members named Bobby Bosalil, Bosalil, I'm just going to play it off. One of the family members named Bobby Bosalil was like, I know a guy, I can get you drugs. So they give Bobby some money to cover the drugs. And he goes over to his friend's house, Gary Hinman, and he gets drugs for the biker guys. So they get the drugs, they do the drugs, and then they're pissed. They're like, these drugs were shit. Like, these were bad drugs you gave us. Give us our money back. they didn't didn't do (laughs) anything right bobby is like yo i'm really sorry i promise i wasn't trying to rip you off i'll go get your money like hold please okay so the biker dudes are getting more and more angry the longer it's taking to get their money back and they're threatening to start killing people and so charlie gets involved and he tells bobby he's like take susan atkins and mary brunner with you and go to gary's house and go get the money like y'all just go get it so they go to gary's house he comes to the door. They like bust in with a gun, threatening him, telling him the drugs he gave him were bad and that he needed to give them the money back right now. And Gary's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you know me, we're friends. I would never intentionally give you bad drugs. Like the drug, I'm, I'm sure the drugs were good. Like, also, I don't even have that money anymore. Like I already spent it. So this is where things escalated. They ended up tying Gary up and staying at his house for two days trying to get him to either give them the money or give them something valuable that they could give to the straight Satan so they would get them off their backs. The whole time, Gary is insisting that he doesn't have any money or like anything of value. At one point, there was a struggle and one of the girls freaked out and ended up calling Charlie and telling him, you you know, it's not, stuff's not going right. Gary's not cooperating. So the struggle ends after Bobby, like, gets control over him, and the two men just start, like, talking. Gary's like, okay, like, I I can do this. I'll sign my car over to you. It's worth probably around a thousand bucks. You can take that and, like, all the money I have, which isn't much at all, but, like, you can have that. That's honestly all I have. So Bobby's like, okay, cool, that might work. Let's do this. Well, then Charlie busts in, like, the Kool-Aid man with a fucking sword and cuts Gary Mm -hmm. across the face. Yeah, so Bobby's like, dude, that was super unnecessary like we had an agreement like we had this under control he was going to help us out and now what are we going to do like you literally just sliced his face in his ear with a fucking sword like he's going to tell somebody about this so charlie tells bobby you know what you have to do get it done and he leaves <laughs> and he's like i had this under control <laughs> <laughs> he's like why did you come here <laughs> right <laughs> So Bobby is panicked at this point. He says that he realized that if he took Gary to the hospital, Gary would, like, rat on him and Charlie and everyone else. Like, there was no way out. The only thing that he could do to make it all go away was to kill him. So Bobby ended up stabbing Gary to death. And then either he or one of the girls wrote political piggy on the wall in Gary's blood, along with a paw print on the wall in his blood. To try to make police think that the Black Panthers had done this. Not long after Gary's murder, Bobby was pulled over while driving Gary's car. Not smart. So he gets arrested and charged with Gary's murder because, like, he did it. He killed him. But this doesn't sit right with Charlie because, after all, Bobby is a family member and Charlie always puts his family first. So he decides the only way to get Bobby out of jail is to kill again and leave the scene the same way Gary was found. That way police would have to let Bobby go because obviously he couldn't have done it if he was in jail at the time. Right. Right. That's his crazy ass thinking. So they would have to be like, oh my bad, that wasn't you. Like out you go.
0: (laughs) Out you go. Out you go. Bye bye now. (laughs) So back at
1: Spawn Ranch, Charlie and Tex are trying to make a plan. They're like, who do we hate? That we can kill and make this look like a copycat scene of Gary's murder and Charlie's like I got it Terry Melcher remember him the music producer mm-hmm. that had stolen and altered his music so Charlie knew where Terry lived because he had been to his home when they were all still living with Dennis Wilson only problem with that was that Terry didn't live there anymore Terry was now renting his home to movie director Roman Polanski and his eight-month pregnant wife, actress Sharon Tate. So this is the most unfortunate wrong place at the wrong time situation. Right. So this brings us to the super early hours of August 9th, 1969, like right after midnight that early. Roman Polanski was out of town working. And since Sharon was so far along in her pregnancy, he didn't really want her staying alone so she had three of her friends over that night to hang and like keep her company. Among these friends were her ex fiance and famous movie star hairstylist Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, who just happened to be the heiress of the Folgers coffee fortune, and Abigail's boyfriend, Wojciech Frakowski, who was one of Polanski's good friends and he was an aspiring screenwriter. Also at the house that night was 18 year old Stephen Parent. Stephen wasn't acquainted with anyone in the house that night or any of the manson family he was just another tragic wrong place wrong time situation right right so Stephen was friends with william garrettson who was the caretaker at the polanski residence and he lived in the small cottage behind the house so Stephen had dropped by to visit his friend for a little bit and then he gets into his car to head home and starts pulling out of the driveway when he notices a man motioning at him to stop that man was Tex Watson. hmm Manson had sent Tex, Susan Atkins, Linda Casabian, and Patricia Kremwinkle to the house that night. He told the girls to do everything that Tex tells them to do. He didn't tell them exactly what they're going to, to do there. He just told them do whatever Tex says. But he did tell them to leave a sign wherever they went, something witchy, he said. So he did tell Tex the whole plan which was that he wanted to take care of Terry Melcher. When the family members were making their way towards the house, they spotted headlights headed towards them and Tex ordered the girls to hide in the bushes. When Steven pulled up, Tex immediately pointed a twenty-two caliber revolver at him. Steven starts begging Tex not to hurt him. He's like, please let me go. I promise I won't say anything to anyone like I never saw you here. Tex then slashes at Steven's hand with a knife severing tendons and cutting his watch off of his wrist he then shoots steven in the chest and abdomen four times killing him tex then tells the girls to push the car further up the driveway and in the meantime linda was like completely mortified by what had just happened and was like freaking the fuck out so tex tells her to stay outside and basically act as a lookout while the others went on tex then finds a window that's unlocked cuts the screen and goes through the window. And he lets Susan and Patricia inside. They find Ferkowski asleep on the couch. And Tex wakes him up very aggressively by kicking him in the head. And orders him to get on the floor. And he starts, like, tying him up. Tex tells Susan to go search the house and bring anyone else that's in the house into the living room. So when Ferkowski asked Tex, like, who he was and what he was doing there, Tex said, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business whatever meanwhile yeah yeah. meanwhile susan had found the others abigail jay and sharon and brought them all into the living room tech starts tying sharon and jay together by their necks with a rope that he had brought with him and then he slung the rope over like this really high beam on the ceiling and jay starts like kind of going off on him telling him you know don't be so rough with sharon like she's pregnant what's your deal in reply to Jay's protest, Tex shot him. So now Jay is laying on the ground with a gunshot wound tied to pregnant Sharon Tate. And Abigail was taken back to the bedroom to get her purse and give them like all of her money that she had, which was only right. $70. She only had 70 bucks with her because who carries around all of their money all the time? Nobody's smart. Right. <laughs> Especially not a billionaire coffee heiress. So she gives them the money that she has and tech seems like a little pissed off that it's only 70 bucks because of that well not because of that but in reply to that he begins stabbing jay stabs him seven times killing him meanwhile frikowski was able to free his hands and he began struggling with susan so she like stabbed at his legs with a knife but he was able to break free and he ran to the front door runs out the front door onto the porch well tech sees this sees susan struggling and he's worried that he's about to escape so he joins in and he strikes for over the head with a gun multiple times breaking like the butt of the gun in the process mm-hmm. that's how hard he's hitting him he stabbed him repeatedly and shot him twice it was around this time that lookout linda comes up the driveway after hearing all this commotion and she is just like mortified. She's freaking out about the whole situation. This is not what she thought they were going to do. She just wants it all to stop. So she lies to Susan and tells her that someone's coming. She's like, we got to go. Someone's coming. Meanwhile, in the house, Abigail had escaped from Patricia. They're doing a terrible job, by the way. Abigail had escaped from Patricia and she had run out the door. So Patricia like, chases her across the front lawn, tackles her, and begins stabbing her to death abigail was stabbed a total of 28 times Mm -hmm. meanwhile furkowski is still like struggling across the lawn and Tex just goes like ape shit crazy and starts stabbing him like in a frenzied fury furkowski was stabbed a total of 51 times back in the house sharon is still there she's like pleading to them to just let her just please allow her to live long enough to have her baby She's like, you can take me hostage. I don't care. Just please let my baby live. Family was not interested in this offer. And Sharon and her unborn baby were both killed. She was stabbed a total of 16 times. And it's unclear whether it was Tex or Susan who killed her. Some reports say one of them. Some say the other. Some say both. Um, They've each said they've done it. And they've each said the other one did it. So who knows?
0: I was going to say... I I do recall them both basically taking ownership for it, so. right? Right. Now but they were like saying it in a gloating
1: way. too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. Especially Susan, crazy ass Susan Atkins.
0: I know. So yeah, she like was gloating about the overkill. She was literally bragging, and we'll get to that in too. All of the in all of the interviews that mm-hmm. I. It was disgusting.
1: Yes. Now, remember, they're supposed to be making this look similar to Gary's murder. Right. So they used a towel and they wrote pig on the front door in Sharon's blood. On the way back to the ranch, they changed into fresh clothes that they had brought with them. And just like threw all of their bloody evidence covered clothes and the weapons over a cliff as they're like driving by. Just like tossed it out the window over a cliff. Super smart. It's probably fine. The next morning, (laughs) the bodies were discovered by the housekeeper when she came to, like, come clean up the house. The police were called to the scene. And when media got wind of the murders, Hollywood went crazy. They were going with the whole satanic ritual killing angle of it. And many celebrities in there were terrified that they were going to be next. There's, like, this crazy satanic cult that's out killing celebrities. That's what's going on. So Charlie is not happy with what had happened his target had been terry and he wasn't even there and this crime scene was like a super just it was just a sloppy mess yes so in total the victims had been stabbed 102 times and they had multiple gunshot wounds but he's like that's okay like the police are going to make this connection between gary's murder and the tate murders and they're going to have to let bobby out and it's cool but like Let's make super sure that they're going to connect it all because it doesn't look like they're connecting anything yet. So let's kill again tonight and leave the same kind of signs so then they have to get it right. Spoiler alert the police never even think these murders are connected to Gary's murder. None of them. None of them. Like your plan sucks. It's really bad.
0: Literally every (sighs) single one of them are so bad that they think that there's like just
1: random killings happen. Yes. Yeah. So for a hot minute, Police's only suspect is William Gerritsen. Remember him? Mm -hmm. He was the caretaker that Stephen was visiting. So he was there the entire time. But the family members didn't know he was there. Like they never went and checked the back cottage. No. And he could hear anything. So that was super sketchy. So the morning the victims were found and police found Gerritsen in his cottage, like right there on the scene. They immediately arrested him on charges of like suspicion of murder. And they actually took him around the house and showed him all the bodies, including the body of his friend, Stephen. Right. Which you're not supposed to do. (laughs) They're like, they're taking him around. They're pointing at like, admit you did this. You did this. Admit it. Like, this is what you did. Look at it. And he's like, what the fuck is happening? So (laughs) (laughs) he continued to tell police that he knew nothing about this. He said he had been listening to loud music all night. Um he said at one point that he thought he would heard firecrackers right after his friend Steven left but he just assumed that Steven had like thrown him out them out of his car like towards his house as like a prank as he's driving off but that had actually it's been actually like gunshots. Yes. Shot. <laughs> he said he also heard a woman screaming out by the pool but he thought it was like a woman screaming like she's getting thrown into the pool which was super common around there because there were always parties going on like all the time so he's like oh they're just right. having a party somebody's getting thrown in the pool whatever so garrettson is held for a few days and he ends up passing a lie detector test also while he's being held another super similar horrific murder occurs so police have no choice but to release him so the night after the tate murders charlie the four family members from the previous night along with Leslie Van Houten and Steve Clem Grogan. They all go out for a drive. Leslie later said that she knew people were going to die that night, but she didn't care. She just wanted to prove herself to Charlie. So they drove around for a while before they stopped at the house of supermarket executive Leno Labianca and his wife, Rosemary. This house was next door to a house that Charlie and the family had partied at the previous year. And by party dad, I mean they moved in without being invited and had, like, loud drug orgy parties all the time. Mm. As they do. So the LaBiancas grew tired of all the partying, and they had actually called the cops on Charlie and the family, and that's why they were kicked out of this house. So Charlie remembers this, and he's like, perfect. Here's our next victims. This is going to tie it all together. I don't like them. So Charlie went into the house first, and he tied up the LaBiancas, and then he left. He was like, y'all got this. I need just straight dipped. No blood on my hands. Before dipping, he had taken Rosemary's wallet and he sent Patricia and Leslie into the house and instructed text to make sure both women played a part in these murders. The couple was then stabbed to death a total of 67 times. Autopsies later revealed that most of the stab wounds occurred post-mortem. So tons and tons of overkill here. The girls also left a steak knife sticking out of Leno's throat, and they carved war on his exposed abdomen. Then they used the couple's blood to write death to pigs, rise, and helter-skelter on the walls and on the fridge, except that they misspelled helter-skelter. They,
0: mm-hmm. they
1: wrote Helter skelter because they're, like, really smart and junk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Charlie and the family members then go to the straight Satan's hangout to give them the money that they were owed for the bad drugs that Charlie had. He got the money from Rosemary's wallet. So they go over there. He's like, here's your money back for those drugs. Let's be good. We're good, right? You're going to protect us again. So he's all like trying to tie it all together. So Charlie's like, this is perfect. The cops are going to tie this murder to the murders last night. And then they're going to connect these murders to Gary's murder because they're so similar. And then... They'll connect Gary's murder to the murder of the Black Panther drug dealer, Bernard Crow, who Charlie still thought was dead, but wasn't. (laughs) He's still alive, (laughs) bruh. He's still alive. And none of these connections are happening. Like, you're thinking way too much into all of this. It's not happening. Stop trying to make fetch a thing. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the ranch, there was a ranch hand named Donald Shorty Shea. I said Shorty like it was his middle name. Shorty was his nickname. (laughs) Right. He went by Shorty. So, he'd been at the ranch for years, working for George Spawn way before the Manson family ever showed up. And Shorty didn't trust the family. He told George that they were just using him for his property, and they're, like, taking advantage of him. But George really enjoyed the company of the girls, you know what I mean? So, he didn't really pay too much attention to what Shorty was saying. And on August 16th, 1969, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department raided the ranch. And 26 members of the family, including Charlie, were arrested on suspicion of auto theft. So the family had actually been stealing a bunch of vehicles, like a bunch of Volkswagens and other vehicles, and converting them into dune buggies with weapons, like Mad Max style. So, they, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to prepare for health or shelter, right? <laughs> so they weren't in jail long due to a paperwork error. The warrant for the ranch had been misdated. So they were just all released. They're like, oh, we oh, can't keep God. you. Oh, God. Yep. So Charlie then became super suspicious that Shorty had tipped the cops off because he knew that Shorty didn't like him. And he knew that he didn't like the family staying at the ranch.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So 10 days after the raid, Shorty suddenly vanished. His body was found nearly a decade after his death when Clem Grogan agreed to lead police to his body. So he had been murdered by Tex, Clem, and another family member named Bruce Davis by order of Charlie, according to them, for being a snitch. According to Davis, family members Bill Vance and Larry Bailey were also present during this murder, but they did not participate. So now the family's on the police's radar, so they need to find another place to stay. This is when family member Catherine Gillies speaks up, and she tells them that she has the perfect place them to stay in the desert of death valley so kathy had come across the family a while back at one of those recording sessions her boyfriend at the time had actually been a recording engineer and she just happened to be at the studio the day that charlie and the family came in to record kathy was like immediately super fascinated by charlie's music and so when he's done recording she goes up to him and she's like tells him about how much she loves the music and charlie's like you want to go for a ride with me and she was like yeah okay so they left for like a half an hour and they come back and Kathy tells her boyfriend that she had just met Jesus Christ and she was going to go home with him so bye
0: (laughs) he's like what exactly
1: (laughs) so Kathy tells Charlie about this remote ranch that her grandparents owned in Death Valley Charlie was like perfect let's go So they all hop on the bus and they make their way to Myers Ranch. And on their way to Myers Ranch, they spot Barker Ranch. This was like an old mining property that was pretty cut off from the world. So Charlie's like, perfect, this this works. So now they've got Myers Ranch and Barker Ranch. They're out in the desert. They're doing their thing. They're making more Mad Max vehicles for the big war that's surely about to take place. And on October 12th, 1979... Officers raided the Barker Ranch on suspicion of auto theft. Huh. Hmm. How about that? Huh. Again. So this time, 24 members of the family were arrested. Manson was found hiding his tiny ass in a little cabinet under a bathroom sink. And he was found because they saw some of his crazy ass hair, like, sticking out of the cabinet <laughs> door. <laughs> like, they're just walking by this cabinet door, like, what the fuck is that? And they open it, and he's just like, there. <laughs> oh hi so they're arrested for auto theft this has nothing to do with all the murders at all and susan atkins starts running her big mouth in jail because she likes to brag Mm
0: -hmm. so she
1: brags to her cellmate virginia graham that she and the family were the ones that had murdered sharon tate and virginia was like well, obviously, I want a lesser sentence for myself. So she immediately t- t- took this information <laughs> to the authorities. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is where everything just falls apart. Police unknowingly already had the gun from the Tate murders in their possession. So back in September, a 10-year-old boy had found the twenty-two caliber revolver in some bushes at his house. Because remember, they had just like thrown the shit out the window. Right. This boy... Immediately ran to his house and he like tells his dad what he found. His dad comes out and looks in the bushes and then he calls the police. Police come, pick the gun up with their bare hands, and they're like, "Okay, nothing to see here," and they just like stored in an evidence locker and like forgot about it. So they already have the gun. Didn't make any connections between it and the tape murders that had just happened before that. But okay, around that same time, while Susan's running around in jail detectives on the la bianca case were interviewing al springer who was a member of the straight satans so at this time the tate murders and the la bianca murders weren't being connected even though they were so similar because they were in different jurisdictions right and police just like weren't connecting it like they weren't communicating they weren't putting it together yet so word had leaked to police that the straight satans might have some knowledge on the la bianca murders And Springer told detectives that Manson had bragged to him back in August at Spawn Ranch about knocking off five people. Springer told them that Manson had said the Tate killers wrote something on the refrigerator in blood, something about pigs. And another member of the Straight Satans that police questioned named Danny DeCarlo told police that he had heard one of the Manson family members brag that we got five piggies. And then at another point, Manson had asked him how to decompose a body, whatever that means. He's like, how do you decompose a body? So now they're starting to link the Tate and LaBianca murders together. And based on Susan Atkins' jailhouse confession and interviews conducted on several of the family members, police were eventually able to identify and arrest the five family members that participated in the Tate-LaBianca murders. In December of 1969, manson and five members are officially being charged with these murders and then suddenly out of nowhere the bloody clothes from the murder were found by a news reporter which is like off a hunch so al wyman and his news crew from channel seven they were actually the first news crew on the scene at the tate house when the murders were discovered al took like meticulous notes of everything in this journal that he kept like always whatever case he's working on he's making his notes. And one of his most significant entries was on December 15th, 1969, four months after the murders occurred. And this entry was entitled Found Tate Clothes. So basically, what had happened was that Al couldn't stop thinking about the case. And he's like, I'm sure there has to be some evidence somewhere. So he's thinking, and he tells his crew, I'm going to start a stopwatch and I'm going to, we're going to leave the Tate house, we're going to drive. I'm going to completely undress and redress and let's see how long it takes us and where we end up by the time I redress. But how, how would he have known?
0: Exactly. That's what I was, that thinking they, about on. I'm sorry, but how would he have known that they had undressed and redressed anyways?
1: Right. How, how would, would he know have that? known
0: that they discarded the bloody clothes that is
1: the most random that's what i thought the whole time i was drinking this i was like this is the most random hunch ever like what a kind of hunch that's is not that?
0: a hunch
1: <laughs> right
0: bitch that is not a hunch somebody motherfucking told you somebody
1: motherfucking told you something you got some inside info that you're not sharing with you're, us and you are lying about it you did you, no because <laughs> seriously
0: like there was zero evidence that anybody took clothes off right nothing
1: nothing Nothing. was left they just i know they hadn't found any bloody clothes at the state house or at the ranch when they had raided it before so i'm guessing he's just thinking where are these clothes i would just assume they had burned them or something if it was me fucking right right that's a really random hunch i'm sorry somebody told you something
0: yes 100 percent
1: so it took him six minutes and 20 seconds. And at that point, they see a wide spot in the road and they pull over, like on the side of the road. And they look down the canyon and there's some clothes on the hillside. So he's like, by simply reenacting the getaway, I found the clothes. Yeah, no, close. you knew
0: they were there too.
1: Right. You and knew this, they were there too. So who told you? And this is. Linked to the suspects to the crime, right? <laughs> probably fucking Susan. She probably did. <laughs> that's, that's what I said. Susan. Susan. <laughs> she probably she
0: she sold you the story, bitch. She, okay, she sold you the story.
1: She probably didn't even sell it because she's just dumb. She just likes running uh, her mouth.
0: No, yep. you you question because you're a reporter. You went and did what you, you could
1: and interviewed people and did what you did and, and you got some information.
0: And you got in. When you probably should not have been able to get in. Like, you illegally got in. And so you had to say it was a
1: hunch because you couldn't legally right. flip it out there. You a fucking liar. I'm like, why does nobody <laughs> question this hunch? I mean, it's good that he got this information because these clothes are able to link both the killers. Right. And the victims together. But, like, you got this info somewhere. hmm So al called lieutenant robert helder down with the lapd so according to him helder rudely said yeah what do you want when he picked up the phone and to this al said oh i have something you want we found the clothes he was just like oh you know i just did your job for you you're welcome so that's how that played out so now they have the, some evidence besides you know susan atkins running around <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> bitch told him
1: On June 15th, 1970, the trial starts and Charlie asked for permission to represent himself. They were like, yeah, no, mm -mm, that's not going to happen. So (laughs) Susan Atkins gave a testimony before everything started, like when the defense, they're all like trying to get their stuff together. She gives a testimony and she described all of the events that happened in great detail, showing no remorse at all. And defense attorneys were like, yeah, that's not a good look. We can't let you talk, like, at all. You just sit over there and be quiet. The trial was absolutely bonkers. This case was a It huge, was crazy. Mm-hmm, it was a huge deal, and it was filmed for TV. So, like, Hollywood's going say, crazy over this shit. Yep, It was televised, which
0: made Susan and Tex and all of them that much more eager
1: to tell their story. It was, made Charlie act even more charlie so oh yeah day after day he would come into court and he would just like spew wild shit (laughs) he's a smart fella so he knew this trial was a circus and so he's like literally just playing into it he would like have constant intense stare-offs with the camera because that would be like super theatrical Right. <laughs> I forgot about that. He would literally just stare, just stare, crazy eyed. <laughs> he would also do this to the jur- jurors, making them feel like super uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> the media was literally eating all this up, and he knew it. So every day, Charlie, Susan, Leslie, and Patricia would meet up before the trial and discuss what they were going to do that day. So he would tell the girls what he wanted to do, and they would just blindly follow because that's what they did. One example is like one time he told them to stand up and hold hands at some point during the trial, like as a symbol. Another time he told them to get up and scream, to start screaming. Uh, another time he told them to walk into court holding hands while singing his songs. Oh, I, yeah, I remember that. That was pretty creepy, actually. So It was. <laughs> it <yeah>. was. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the rest of the Manson family members had all been banned from the courtroom. For disrupting court. So they kept a vigil outside of the courthouse to show their support. Like they would literally just sit outside the courtroom, like all the time, singing and talking to reporters about how Charlie was innocent. And at one point during the trial, Charlie carved an X into his forehead to symbolize his removal of himself from the rest of society. The next day, the three girls had done the same to themselves. And later on, Manson would eventually convert that ex into the swastika that we all recognize him with so that's cool cool cool, yeah now the main problem the prosecution had with this trial was that they they had absolutely nothing that tied Charlie himself to the murders basically they didn't have any proof that he did a damn thing they were going to have to get him with like circumstantial evidence and like a conspiracy charge
0: I mean technically he didn't right
1: exactly (laughs) so they're like okay we're gonna have to get creative with this this is where prosecutor vincent Buglioso comes in so he brings in this man with him that everyone thinks is like his assistant who like takes notes throughout the entire trial this man was actually there to help vincent write a book about the entire crazy case which he did and you all might know about it just a little book entitled helter skelter You know, just the best selling true crime book in history. So, literally, (laughs) literally, Vincent was able to use the entire Helter Skelter storyline to link Manson to these murders. This reason for Manson committing these crimes made for a shocking story that the media would just eat up. And it also set Manson up for first degree murder and conspiracy under California law. Without the whole Helter Skelter storyline, there was nothing linking him. Now, a lot of times when you look into Charles Manson, you'll see articles about the Helter Skelter theory. And this is because a lot of people actually think that Vincent embellished the story like a lot in order to convict Manson.
0: But I can't, I can't agree with that because when you listen to
1: interviews. Right. That's why I was like this theory. This is a theory out there there. Yeah. Yeah. So the prosecution didn't mention any of the auto thefts the drugs the bernard Crowe killing that didn't actually happen even though he was Mm -hmm. shot they didn't even like introduce these facts in the case because they were worried that it would make the helter skelter story less believable right and that made them worry that this might lead the jury to questionable doubt like maybe this all had to do with the drug deal gone bad instead of like satanic cult or the helter skelter or maybe charlie technically really didn't do anything I will say that, yes, technically he didn't kill anyone, but he was absolutely a danger to society. And, yes, it makes sense for the prosecution to embellish a little bit, but I don't think they were really embellishing after all the no. stuff I saw. So, no. this whole theory and embellishing it was weird to me. Yeah, I watched. I agree with that. Yeah, I watched a shit ton of interviews with a shit ton of, like, former family members years and years after all this went down and they all had basically the same story telling about how often charlie talked about the helter skelter race war coming and how he changed from like a peaceful guru to like a paranoid dangerous man so i don't think he really embellished it
0: again yeah. drugs are bad i'm going right right
1: why if the story was embellished for court why would they all say the same thing in separate interviews right. like all these years later i don't agree with that. Or they yeah. all paid off yeah i don't i don't that sounds to me so the hearings were a hot mess a few of the manson family girls ended up testifying against manson and the family with the promise of immunity from prosecution from anything else one of the girls was linda kasabian you know look out the linda one,
0: the one yeah the one that was
1: on the lawn mm-hmm. she testified while she was testifying the three girls that were on trial would like yell out to her like calling her a traitor And they're like, oh, you're killing us. And at one point she responded and was like, you're killing yourselves. Like, you did this. (laughs) Another family member that testified against them was Barbara Hoyt. Now, Barbara was not involved in any of the murders at all. But she had absolutely heard Susan Atkins running her big ass mouth about the murders. And Barbara was actually on the fence about testifying. She was like, I don't want to go against the family, but like, this is wrong. They obviously killed these people. Well, she's going back and forth and then she gets this offer from the family and they're like, if you don't testify, we're going to send you on like an all expense paid trip to Hawaii. Like you just chilling in Hawaii, no worries. Like, how does that sound? And Barbara was like, well, I mean, Hawaii sounds pretty fucking rad. Yeah. So she accepted the (laughs) offer. (laughs) Okay, cool. Right. (laughs) So Barbara arrived in Hawaii with Ruth Ann Morehouse that September. And a few days later, out of the blue, Ruth Ann was like, oh shit, I have to go back to LA like suddenly, but you can stay here. That's fine. You can stay here. And Barbara was like, okay. So the two of them took a cab to the airport. Barbara was like, I'll ride with you to your flight, whatever, go to the airport. And Ruth Ann bought Barbara a burger just before she boarded her flight. Now. She's sitting there. Barbara's eating a burger and then all of a sudden Ruth Ann says, "Just imagine if there was 10 tabs of acid in your hamburger." After that, Barbara began to feel funny and then she collapsed a few minutes later. So it turned out there was 10 tabs of acid in her hamburger. <laughs> and just the family, imagine. just imagine, the family was trying to take her out so that she wouldn't testify in court. Right. So, Barbara ended up recovering and she did testify against Manson and the family. And there was also a lawyer named Ronald Hughes that ended up dying during the trial. He was Leslie Van Houten's lawyer. And rumor was it that Charlie didn't really like him very much. Like, he was kind of like a new lawyer. Like, this is one of his first cases and it was a big case. So, during a 10 day recess from the trial, hughes goes on this camping trip and just disappears just disappears and his body was later found in march of 1971 and he was positively id'd by his dental records due oh, to wow. yeah due to like i severe, didn't know about
0: that mm-hmm,
1: crazy due to the severe decomposition of his body his cause of death could never be determined oh
0: that's that's sad.
1: yeah and since then some people think of those just like a camping accident like something happened and was unfortunate that's pretty random right and since then at least one family member has claimed that he was murdered by the family in an act of retaliation but that's never been confirmed and nobody's been charged with his death or anything like that's just what it is wow So on March 29th, 1971, Charlie and the girls were found guilty and charged with seven counts of first-degree murder, and he was also charged with conspiracy to commit murder. They were all sentenced to death, but in 1972, the Supreme Court overturned the death penalty for all sentences that occurred before 1972. So their death sentences were changed to life in prison. At the end of the trial, Charlie said that, All they really accomplished was sending him right back to where he started and where he had asked to remain when they released him in the first place,
0: which is true. Well, I mean, yeah. Now,
1: whatever happened to old Tex? He went in that trial. I was, I was about to say that. Yeah, I was like, "Are you going to tell him?" (laughs) I'm going to tell you about Tex. So he had fled Spawn Ranch in '69 before any of the family members were arrested, and he went back to his home state of Texas and was eventually arrested in McKinney, Texas, after California police contacted the local McKinney police and told them that they had Texas fingerprint on the front door at the Tate crime scene. So Watson was arrested. He fought extradition to California long enough that he wasn't tried with Manson and the others. He had his trial in August of 1971. His defense attorney produced eight psychiatrists to prove that Tex was insane at the time of the murders. 8. On the witness stand, Tex tried to portray himself as Manson's zombie slave. The jury bought none of this and he was convicted of first-degree murder. And mm-hmm. today he remains incarcerated at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, California. In October of 2021, he was denied parole again for at least the next 5 years. So that's what's going on with Tex. Susan Atkins died in prison on September 24th, 2009 at the age of 61 after a battle with brain cancer. Mm -hmm. Leslie Van Houten is 73 years old, and she's still being held at the California Institute for Women in Corona and is scheduled for a parole hearing in May of 2023. As of July of 2022, so just a couple months ago, 74-year-old Patricia Krenwinkel, remains incarcerated at the California Institute for Women in Corona. But I did see an article from May of 2022 that says that she was approved to be suitable for parole. And that Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah, who has represented the Tate family at every single Manson parole hearing since the murders, is like fighting to make sure she does not get released. As for Charlie, he never, ever, ever owned up to his involvement in any of the murders. He proclaimed his innocence until his dying day on November 19th, 2017, at the age of 83. He stood firm that he never, ever told any of the family members to do anything, especially not to kill anyone. He said that they had made their choices on their own and he had nothing to do with it which is kind of true in a way like he never got his hands dirty he never actually killed anyone but he absolutely told them to do it like <laughs> he was like handle it <laughs> yes he said hand like he told them to do it <laughs> so he died of cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure brought on by colon cancer so like all of the things he died of all the things,
0: <laughs> all
1: the things. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the summarized version of the crazy case of charles manson there you have it good old Charlie not good old Charlie I
0: mean not really <laughs> not at
1: all terrible Charlie <laughs> terrible Charlie
0: terrible Charlie
1: <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm happy to be rid of him except I still have to edit this so I still have to listen to it <laughs> <laughs> almost rid. so yeah that's that on that okay so yeah follow us on all the stuff Send us a Gmail, send us your spooky stories. All right. So let's, what? let's, it's been a real long one. Let's like, let's fucking end it. Let's, <laughs> let's fucking be
0: wrong. Oh, okay. What? <laughs> I
1: stopped and just said, okay.
0: Let's go Okay. Okay, bye.
1: Bye. <laughs> So he was born Charles Mile, Miles Mills. There's two L's in it. Anyways, I'm gonna say it both ways in case I fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> it was born Charles Miles Maddox. Not gonna say it the other way. <laughs> I have still had a cough like for a month since I had COVID. It has not gone away. It's very annoying. So it was decided that Charlie would be sent to live with his uncle Bill and Aunt Glenna. Did you hear that? <clears throat> I'm just thinking, are you are you good? <laughs> I'm good. I am good. I can talk a lot. Okay.
0: <laughs>
1: your, your camera just like slowly zoomed out and then back in. <laughs> it's like what is I, happening?
0: I'm not even doing anything. <laughs> I don't know why it
1: keeps stu- doing. It's freaking me out. <laughs> so he escaped the vault G- school. That was a stumble. Say <laughs> that sentence again. Hey, Shadow. <laughs> he is all up in your grill i'm so sorry <laughs> if you could hear that really obnoxious breathing <laughs> he's that would like, be shadow <laughs> he's like right uh. up in your face <laughs>
0: i'm
1: just gonna wait for him to get comfortable
0: okay anyway okay ready
1: yeah so the summer of love was basically this social phenomenon that took place in the summer of 67 what is up with your camera
0: i don't know <laughs> But it's really driving
1: me nuts. It just keeps zooming in and out. In it, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna say that sentence. Before.
0: Yeah, please do. I couldn't. I could not pay attention. Okay. The summer of love. The summer of
1: love. But his followers. Wait, this keeps In March of 1968, two of the girls from the family were walking around sunset. So- I can't talk. Girl. I can't. <laughs> I can't use words. The lieutenant, according to Al, when he answered the phone, he's, he rudely said, oh, oh, he, oh, okay, I lost the spot, though, okay.